0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Supreme Court ruled in 303 Creative that a Colorado designer doesn't have to make wedding websites for gay couples. But over time, the effects could be farther reaching.
1: It is very difficult to see where we might draw a line that just says you can only turn away LGBTQ customers under this. It naturally flows to race, to sex, to national origin, disability, and even religion like interfaith marriages. So this might see an uptick in discrimination against
2: minority religions as well.
0: Then, for Denver poet Susie Q. Smith, birds provide a sense of place.
2: How else do you know where you are, if not for the birds, singing you the chorus of a place, showing you its colors, saying, yes, we see you, you are here, and I am here, I am, I am.
0: Local, national, and international reporting from NPR and Colorado Public Radio has a long history of holding the powerful to account by addressing false narratives with verified facts. Philanthropic support makes this kind of reporting possible, and it strengthens our ability to deliver trustworthy, fact-based journalism essential to our democracy. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In Colorado, it's been illegal to discriminate against someone for being gay, lesbian, trans, or bisexual for 15 years. Recently, a website designer challenged what is and isn't covered by that law. She didn't want to have to make wedding pages for gay couples. And she won at the Supreme Court. So where does that leave protections for LGBTQ Coloradans? Kyle Velti says that may just be the start, that women in general and perhaps religious minorities may also be affected. Velti teaches at the University of Kansas Law School, specializing in religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. She's a past president of the Colorado LGBT Bar Association. And Kyle, welcome. Thanks for having me. Does the Supreme Court's decision mean that LGBTQ protections from discrimination are now dismantled in Colorado?
1: Not completely dismantled, but in important ways are significantly dismantled. One thing I want to say at the outset is that the court did not strike down this law in its entirety Rather, it said, as applied to this particular vendor of wedding websites, uh, she does not have to follow the law. It cannot be applied to her. And so there are still huge swaths of transactions in the public marketplace where LGBTQ consumers in Colorado will be protected by the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act and still have um, an ability to seek out their rights if they are turned away from service.
0: So do you think it would be easier to list for us what is protected still? Or would it be easier to list for us what is now not protected for LGBTQ people seeking particular services?
1: Well, I can do my best to do the latter, which is what is excluded from protection. One of the things that Justice Gorsuch uh, expressly stated in his majority opinion was there are going to be some open questions even after this decision today. Today, we're just holding that a website designer. Uh, engages in protected speech when she makes websites for other people, wedding websites for other people. So we know, for example, now that custom websites that involve words by a website designer will be excluded from coverage from CADA, the Colorado Discrimination Act. Uh, what remains open, though, is what other kinds of expressive products or services will be covered by the court's ruling. So for example, if you hire a calligrapher, if you're a same-sex couple who hires a calligrapher to write the menu for your wedding or the invitation or the save the date card, is that expressive speech in the same sense that the wedding website is? And if the answer to that by a court is yes, it is, then calligraphers can turn away LGBTQ customers seeking wedding-related items. So those are the kinds of questions that are are going to lead to, I think, just a litany of different lawsuits while the courts try to figure out where are the lines that we're going to draw around expressive products and services.
0: The website designer, Lori Smith, and her business, 303 Creative, were deemed indeed to be providing expressive services to make custom websites, though she hadn't made any for weddings yet. And she cited her faith as the reason that she is uncomfortable doing so. Does this ruling say that you have to have religious reasons to turn away a message from an LGBTQ person? Or does it open it up for, I don't know, turning people away on other grounds?
1: It's the latter. Uh, Certainly, Justice Gorsuch notes just a couple of times that Her objection to writing these words about same-sex marriage was in fact her faith and her uh, belief through her faith that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman and same-sex marriage is in her words, false. But, The decision does not hinge on the fact that it was religiously informed speech that she was refusing to write. Rather, it was just the fact that it was speech at all. And so Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent here, points that out and says, listen, this is not limited to faith-based kinds of speech, and it's not limited to LGBTQ customers either. So this could extend, for example, and this is drawn from Justice Sotomayor's dissent, if there is a photographer that sells headshots for professional purposes, and has a belief, whether it's a secular belief that's traditionalist or it's a faith-based belief, that women should not work outside the home, well, is that expressive enough to say, I am not going to take headshots of women? The same could be said for discrimination based on race. Uh, If there is a wedding cake maker or a wedding site maker who thinks that interracial marriage between straight people is either against God's will or just has a white supremacist worldview, not based in religion, both of those actors in the market marketplace would, I think, under this Supreme Court decision, be able to say, I simply don't want to serve opposite sex uh, interracial couples. And to make me do that with a website impinges on my free speech rights, and then I don't have to do it. So it is very difficult to see where we might draw a line that just says you can only turn away LGBTQ customers under this. It naturally flows to race, to sex, Mm. to national origin, disability, and even religion like interfaith marriages. So this might see an uptick in discrimination against minority Minority religions as well.
0: Gosh, so really there are questions, if I can summarize here, on three fronts. One is what will be considered an expressive creative service? One. So yes. does that extend to calligraphy, as you say? Two, will the objections to serving a particular client be limited just to those who have religious exemptions, or will it go beyond that? And then three, could this extend beyond LGBTQ people? And this will all, I suppose, be decided in the courts over the uh, years, perhaps decades to come. The person at the center of this lawsuit, the website designer Lori Smith and her lawyers, say this case is not about discrimination at all. And I'm going to play a clip from Smith on the Nine News program next with Kyle Clark, just after the Supreme Court's verdict. She explains what this case is about to her.
1: The government should not force anyone to say something they don't agree. You may not agree with me on the topic of marriage. We very well may disagree. But the court's decision last week protects each and every person. Nobody wants to be forced to say something to create speech that they don't agree with. And disagreement does not mean discrimination. Free speech is worthy of protecting. I simply want to create speech that's consistent with what I believe. I want that for the LGBT website designer. I want that for people who don't have the same views on marriage that I do. Everyone should be free to speak consistent with their convictions.
0: Smith was represented at the Supreme Court by an organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom, founded by Christian community leaders. and. In a statement about the case, they say the ruling makes clear that non-discrimination laws remain firmly in place and that the government has never needed to compel speech to ensure access to goods and services. What's your reaction?
1: Uh, well, I guess I'd start with my reaction to the plaintiff's statement that she made to the news. I agree with her that disagreement is not discrimination, but turning customers away from your commercial business that's open to the public, that is discrimination, uh, and that is what she sought to do here. Uh, In response to the Alliance Defending Freedom's position here on what this case is about, for many decades, uh, since the beginning of anti-discrimination law, people have attempted to get exemptions from complying with them. And... Over and over and over uh, until this case, pretty much, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, listen, when you tell a vendor that you have to sell their product or go to everyone, that regulates conduct. That does not regulate speech. The government is not targeting any message of yours. It's targeting your behavior. Uh, And Justice Sotomayor brings this out, which is, Anti-discrimination laws are content neutral. Everyone who hangs a shingle in the public marketplace gets to decide what they sell and what they write on their websites or whatever their expressive medium is. But once they decide to make those speech statements in their goods or services, they have to sell them to everyone. So there's just a disconnect here between what the Alliance Defending Freedom and Justice Gorsuch and how they're framing what this is all about, and Justice Sotomayor. And I would say the law up until now frames what's going on here. And the conservative majority kind of won out, but it is a major shift in how anti-discrimination law is viewed and applied in ways that um, will have consequences, I think, that we might not even foresee right now.
0: Well, two follow-ups. It strikes me, Kyle, that if I'm getting married, I want the person designing my website to want to do it. So what's wrong with saying, I don't like to do this. I don't want to do it. Find someone who will find joy in it.
1: Right. Um, You know, there's nothing quite wrong with saying that, but Following up and saying, I actually won't serve you, is the conduct, right? And so the state of Colorado has never told Lori Smith that she can't speak out against same-sex marriage um, or send the messages she wants to send about marriage. You know, they've just said, if you're going to sell websites, you have to sell them to everyone, uh, including marriage websites, she can choose to not send messages at all about weddings by doing other kinds of websites, which is all she's done until this point. Your listeners might be familiar with the fact that she never actually turned away a gay couple. She never actually did a a wedding uh, website because she sought advice from the courts before she even tried. So she could be exempt if, in fact, she tried to turn away a same-sex couple. But to your point of going to a willing vendor, um, absolutely. I think customers would like to go shop at places where they know their identity. And lived experiences are not just tolerated but um, accepted and celebrated. But you know, in a place like Denver or Fort Collins or Grand Junction, that might be easy, right? To find a vendor who you know is LGBTQ friendly, who won't be muttering under their breath when they sell you your wedding um, invitations or cake. But in very rural mountain towns where maybe there's one photographer or one web designer or one uh, baker, those options just aren't available to kind of go somewhere else. And there was some briefing in the Supreme Court about folks who are in remote military installations. And, you know, on, on the base, there's one of everything. There's an access problem there. And then, of course, I'd say overall with that position or question that you asked that, You know there's always a dignitary harm of being turned away even if you know you can go just down the block to the baker that has a rainbow flag in their window just the fact of not knowing and going through experience of being turned away is something this country decided we weren't going to stand for right after reconstruction um with the 13th 14th and 15th amendments and then of course with the civil rights act of 1964 where we said race and color are not grounds to turn customers away in the public square
0: I do want to explore the history, particularly of Colorado's law, in in just a moment. But let me pose a polemic, and I'm acknowledging that this is an extreme example so that we can do a little bit of legal thinking out loud. Um, If a Nazi came in and said, I want a swastika cake, and you said, no, I'm not going to make that for you, that's gross, that's disgusting. You, You don't think that that person should be compelled to make a swastika cake.
1: Absolutely not. And Colorado anti-discrimination law wouldn't force the baker to make that cake because presumably the baker would not make that cake for anyone. But what Colorado's anti-discrimination statute says, if you are in the business of making swastika cakes, you have to sell it to the Nazi, to the Jew, to the Catholic, and to the agnostic. You have to sell it to everyone. So again, vendors get to choose their message, but once they decide on a message, then they have to sell to everyone who's protected based on their identity under the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act.
0: What is the brief history of why states, including Colorado, have established anti-discrimination laws and how they've developed over time to include sexual orientation and gender identity?
1: So the history of public accommodations laws, and public accommodations are just the things you'd see in the public square, like restaurants and hotels barbershops and doctors and service providers like photographers or website designers. Um, and public accommodations laws started in the common law, I mean, back in very early days of our republic, and started to be codified into statutes and the constitution after the Civil War, and the right to purchase goods and services from public accommodations was rooted in the common law even before. Um, As time went on, as you noted, states expanded the common law and started to actually put these things in the statute books. But the origin of public accommodation laws really is in race and in the history of slavery and Jim Crow white supremacy, that's where it all started. And in those early days of the 1960s, there were vendors who were seeking exemptions from the Civil Rights Act to not serve Black people in the South. So, as um, more groups got political power, for example, women in the uh, the 1970s started to say, Well, we want to be included in public accommodations laws. We don't want to walk up to a bar and it says men only or women's days are on Wednesdays. We want to be able to access the public market at any time, like our male counterparts. So, many states would go and and they would add sex to that. Um, And then we saw In the 2000s, many states adding on sexual orientation and then gender identity. And the the reason that we have a lot of state law around this is because the federal law, the Civil Rights Act, Title II is the Public Accommodations Provision, Mm -hmm. and it only applies to race and color and national origin. It doesn't even have sex in it right now. So under federal law, um, a woman can be turned away from a transaction in the public square simply because she's a woman. Thankfully, most states prohibit that now. And at my last count, there was about 28 states in the country that include in their public accommodations law sexual orientation and gender identity uh, or some combination thereof.
0: And no doubt the ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, affects Colorado's law, but presumably those other state-level laws as well.
1: Absolutely, Uh right. The First Amendment will trump, um, as a matter of federal supremacy and constitutional supremacy, all of those laws as applied, at least right now, as applied to web designers who are doing marriage websites.
0: You know, I think it's salient to mention the religious underpinnings of racism. I mean, when I was looking up anti-miscegenation laws, for instance that were struck down in Loving versus Virginia, people held as an article of faith their racist views and cited Christ.
1: Yes. Yes, they did. Um, And in fact, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was being debated in the well of the Senate and the House of Representatives, senators and reps were taking the floor uh, during the legislative debate to say, I'm against desegregation. I am for segregation because that's what the Bible teaches. And it's important to remember, I think, that back in the 60s when these conversations were happening, those positions, those faith-based positions about segregation were not considered to be fringe. They were very much mainstream. Of course, there were others who deeply disagreed, but it was a legitimate conversation to be having back then. It's only now, right, in 2023, kind of looking backwards that we look back and say, wow, I can't believe that, you know, Senator Byrd from West Virginia or others were saying, don't desegregate because the Bible says the races shouldn't mix. And the reason we look back at that now and say, well, that's kind of crazy is because the Civil Rights Act did pass and it has been applied without exemption since 1964. And because we haven't had those exemptions, our norms have changed and our social contract with each other have changed to the extent that now people say, well, What vendor would ever actually turn away an interracial couple who's straight? You know, Justice Sotomayor says in her dissent, like, this is a really big deal, not just because of the substantive law that changes here, but just the message that the court sends by writing these words on the page today is signaling second-class citizenship for LGBTQ consumers. And we've been here and done this before with race. And we said no. And we've been here with sex. And we said no. No exemptions. This is a new and dark day in the United States, according to Justice Sotomayor.
0: And I I will note that, obviously, many Christians were on the side of expanding civil rights, look no further than the Southern Christian Leadership Council. Absolutely. Dr. King himself, for that matter. Yes. Along with many white Christians, of course. Exactly. One argument I've heard after the 303 decision is that the ruling is not about turning away people, but turning away messages you disagree with. Is that a distinction without a difference to you?
1: So Lori Smith makes the argument through her lawyers, and I think this is what you're getting at, which is, listen, this isn't actually sexual orientation discrimination, right? I would sell a website for your real estate company if you are a lesbian woman and said, I'm starting a real estate company, please start me a website. I would do that and I would sell that to the lesbian. This is really about not selling same-sex wedding sites to anyone. I wouldn't sell it to a straight person who wanted it. I wouldn't sell it to a gay person who wanted it because of that message-based contention about the good or service. And, you know, I think my response would be very consistent with what Justice Sotomayor said, which essentially is this. Sexual orientation is in many ways relational, right? You act out and live your sexual orientation through your relationships, And that often involves marrying your partner of the same sex. So it's really, I think, disingenuous to say, you know, I'm just uncoupling identity and sexual orientation from my services. Those things really go hand in hand.
0: Is there any push to get sexual orientation, gender identity added to a federal anti-discrimination law?
1: There is. The Equality Act was first introduced to Congress soon after the Obergefell marriage equality decision, and that was in 2015. Um, It has made it out of the House in the past, but never out of the Senate. And it would just take the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and it would amend portions of it, including the employment discrimination provision and the public accommodations provision. And it would add not only sexual orientation and gender identity, but it would also add sex to the public accommodations provision and also add Additional protections beyond public accommodation and employment, such as forbidding credit discrimination, for example, and jury service discrimination, all of which still touch on LGBTQ people.
0: We hope to speak soon with the Alliance Defending Freedom to hear what's next in their legal fight. What do you think is the next challenge to anti-discrimination laws?
1: I think that the Alliance Defending Freedom is going to continue down this path of trying to expand the universe of what includes expressive products and services as widely as they can to get further zones of semi-theocratic zones of exemption is what what the Alliance Defending Freedom is seeking. It's a, it's a decades-long, nationally-coordinated campaign. They have uh, a budget of, gosh, a lot of money. Um... It was, let's see, it were $55 million in revenue in 2017 and a $40 million budget. Uh, And so this is something they're working hard on. But I I guess what I would say the biggest unanswered question now beyond like what is the scope and reach of the expressive products and services question is still the question that was presented to the court in Masterpiece Cake Shop, right, about whether one's religious exercise rights are are trodden on when they have to sell a cake to a, uh, a gay couple. The court still hasn't answered that question. Hmm. And so this was a purely speech case, but we still have the religious exercise case. It's just a different part of the First Amendment. It's a different fundamental right than speech. And the court has consistently punted on whether someone like Jack Phillips can say, my faith precludes me uh, in terms of my religious exercise, not even my speech rights. And the court has not answered that question yet. And there is some cases percolating in the courts below on that very question.
0: I want to say that the Alliance Defending Freedom, for context, has tried to outlaw homosexual acts in the United States in the past. It has fought against legalizing gay marriage. Again, we hope to hear from them soon. Kyle, between this website designer case and the cake designer case you cited there five years ago, Colorado seems to have been at the center of a national legal fight. I mean, this conflict between free speech and anti-discrimination laws. Why do you think Colorado is at the center?
1: Before I answer, I would add that we also had the case of Amendment 2 that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was heard in 1995 and decided in 1996. I don't know that I have a great answer. I mean, I can kind of speculate. I mean, part of what I think uh, results in cases from Colorado is that Colorado has robust anti-discrimination protections and has had them for many, 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 many years with very few exemptions written into the law itself. And so when you start with a strong protection of consumers and then you have a regime like the Colorado Civil Rights Division that actually enforces uh, with teeth these protections, uh, then you're ultimately going to end up with these kinds of disputes and tensions between equality for consumers and liberty and speech rights for some vendors. Um, I think I might also note that, you know, Colorado, I think, is known as a purple state these days. So while there's um, a wide swath, I think, of blue, right, Democratic, left-leaning, uh, particularly in the I-25 corridor, there's also, you know, a population there that are still what we might call traditional Christian or part of the religious right, uh, particularly down to the springs. And so there's just this kind of stars aligning in terms of the politics the demographics and the state of the law that I think, if not invites these, certainly provides the, the petri dish that they need to grow in these disputes.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Law professor Kyle Velti of the University of Kansas. She studies anti-discrimination laws and religious exemptions. Velty is past president and still a member of the Colorado LGBT Bar Association. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what we can glean about Denver these days from pigeons and bald eagles. I'm Ryan Morner here with CPR News and KRCC. Hey, it's Vic Valla from CPR's podcast, Back from Broken, returning for season four. More stories about the highest highs. I've had this incredible wave of love. The darkest moments.
2: I ran up to mom and I said, Daddy wants me to sniff this yellow powder in my nose.
0: And what it takes to make a comeback. You just have to be like, I need to put myself first. Back from Broken. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Supported in part by C.U. Ann
0: Denver's next mayor is sworn in Monday. Mike Johnston takes the oath at the Ellie Cockins Opera House downtown. Downtown, a place that has seen better days, a place our next guest has thought a lot about. Susie Q. Smith is an artist and activist, a combination she was drawn to because of the artistry she loved as a girl in Denver.
2: I grew up with hip-hop. I grew up with punk rock. <laughs> you know, I grew up with very politically engaging work um, and what hip hop was in the 1980s and the 1990s and thinking about some of the ways that it engaged and also punk rock and thinking about a lot of artists and musicians that that made things that were deeply compelling. Also, a lot of the work that I saw wasn't necessarily reflective of the things that I needed to hear and I wasn't necessarily represented in all the ways that I wanted to be, which is probably part of what led me to become an artist. Mm. Um, I
0: what think, part of yourself was not reflected, do you think?
2: I think so much, all of the intersections that I live in, right? Nowhere in the world of music, nowhere in the world of literature did I see Denver represented. Right? You know I mean? <laughs> you know, being this biracial black girl growing up in Denver, Colorado, I didn't see a lot of me anywhere. And so uh, I think that's part of it.
0: Dynasty didn't do it for me.
2: Not at all. <laughs> it's, it's not present. And so I think part of that is just going like, huh. My creative process is either like from the excess or from the void, right? And so it's either like this abundance of feelings that I can't contain and I have to put them somewhere so I don't explode. But there's also that void of like kind of looking around like, is someone going to say this thing? Is no one's going to say this? No one's going to, we're not talking about, oh, it's me. It has to be me. I have to be the person to say this Mm -hmm. thing. If I want to put this in the air, if I want this thought to exist outside of myself, I have to make sure that I communicate it.
0: I love that you said it. I have to put this in the air, because in April, you released three poems that all feature birds. (laughs) Pigeons, bald eagles, and ravens. True. What can we learn about Denver from birds?
2: Uh, They are part of Denver's ecosystem, or were. I think that... A lot of us during the pandemic uh, started paying attention to the very small nature around our homes, especially in the city. I think, you know, you start to get to know the squirrels that live in your trees and you notice the little robins and you notice which birds you see and which birds you don't. And you fall in love with the little bird sounds. And I think being at home for a long period of time, we all sort of got more aware of the ecosystems around us, Hmm. even in the city. You get to know your raccoons. right? (laughs) And it's
0: not just visual, right? With birds, of Christ, it's sound. Right. I mean, sometimes they would keep me up. When I wanted to be sleeping in. Very much. Yeah.
2: Very much. And so that's how the Raven poem happened, actually. So during the pandemic, uh, with my dear friend Vogue Robinson, who lives in Las Vegas, she and I co-hosted every Sunday morning for a year writing sessions for people just to come and be in community and sit together and write on Zoom. And there was one Sunday morning during one of those writing sessions, there was a very loud raven aggressively yelling outside of my window. And I was trying to focus and I thought that I knew what I was going to write about that morning. And the raven just kept yelling and it was right outside the window. And so I had to become aware of it. And that's how the raven poem ended up being written because it had to be. Um, I think with the pigeons, similarly, I wasn't going downtown as much during the at home times. And mm-hmm. then, so then when I did, I noticed I wasn't seeing pigeons. and. That's something that I look for. Someone, you know, I've traveled all over the country, and from one city to the next, I kind of feel at home when I look at pigeons, because everywhere has pigeons. And I noticed they were missing, and I thought that was very odd. And at first, I just thought it was like a strange coincidence. It's like, huh, no pigeons today. No pigeons. No pigeons. And then I finally started looking it up, and I realized that the lack of pigeons was very intentional.
0: Oh, really? hmm Like Denver decided to get rid of them? In fact, Yes. What, what's the story?
2: Uh, so there's, yeah, I found a little article. <laughs> and so uh, Denver poisoned the pigeons. Yeah, they, find, they they tried a few different things. And it almost reads like, um, some of it's almost comical. Like the way the U.S. tried to get rid of Fidel Castro. Like all of these, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> trying to make his beard fall <laughs> okay, out. Like all of these outrageous things, right, that yeah, they did. Poisoned and pens. And, you know, they built these, like, these spiky things across, like, a lot of the different, like, the higher... Roofs, rooftops in downtown. Oh, yes, I've seen those, that they, kind of hostile architecture. Yeah, it, yes, but the pigeons like figured all those things out and they were like, oh, we're just going to nest in this. This is great. Thanks, Denver. You know, and so they found all of these ways. And it, the primary motivation was that the city was spending so much money on abatement of their waste, right? There were so many pigeons and they were trying to figure out how to get rid of them. And so they finally found that there was a hallucinogenic that worked, um, that either cause them to get very confused and, and no longer return home or, or die. So that is why Denver no longer really has pigeons in, in downtown. We still have pigeons as a city, but mm-hmm. downtown, not so much. Is there a symbol or metaphor in that for you? Absolutely. I feel like it's almost a test of who's, who's valuable, right? People generally don't love pigeons. I think that, and, and the fact that when I talk about it, no one else has noticed that they're gone. Mm -hmm. is the most alarming bit. And so it feels like, you know, when we talk about canaries in the coal mine, right? I feel called out, Susie. (laughs) (laughs) It's really true. No one has noticed that they're gone. No one loves them. And so when they're missing, everyone's fine, right? And when we consider the hostile architecture, of course, in downtown Denver to remove people who are without housing. And so uh, we used to have benches and places for people to sit. When you think about the coffee shops downtown, most of them don't have indoor seating anymore. Most of them have, you know, signs that are very clear, like, take your things and get on move out. On, right? Move on, move like And also now, like, grass is replaced with huge boulders, so people can't set up tents. Like, there are a lot of different things that are quite hostile to anyone sitting still and getting comfortable for any length of time. I
0: hear you saying this is like avian gentrification.
2: Indeed, in deciding which species are valuable and who we would like to attract and who we would not. And I think that you know it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country we're the second most rapidly gentrified city in the country in the last 10 years just right behind San Francisco so that's huge considering the amount of change right and also having lived in Denver for my entire life the erasure is is really astounding so i'm not really opposed to growth i've been primarily i think curious about it and as denver continues to reinvent itself and reinvent itself i have so many questions about who denver is for and as it continues to change, I'm still not sure what the answer is, right? And I think it's certainly not for pigeons, and it has decided that.
0: I think we got to do the pigeon.: Yeah lawn.
2: me too. Sure. Um, downtown is dead. Even the pigeons don't go down there anymore. My reflection in the buildings looks like a ghost. The city killed the pigeons off, put up spikes they just built nests in put up poison, sent them flying in circles till they got lost or dropped dead. The city was tired of their crap, cleaning it over and over. The city hates its poor, and everyone knows pigeons are poor man's doves. The city does not have doves. The city announced last year it was time to start killing the geese. They were becoming a nuisance, so common, so everywhere. The city would rather have... An ostrich or an emu, a roadrunner, but only if it owns a home. I keep looking for the pigeons, the lavender-gray fringes, The smoky white tufts, the free range yolky eyes watching back while they peck and gather and peck and gather. No one else even notices they're gone, which, of course, feels like a test. Who else am I supposed to share these sideways glances with? How else do you keep time? How else do you know where you are, if not for the birds singing you the chorus of a place, showing you its colors, saying, Yes, we see you, you are here, and I am here, I am. I am, I am, I am, I am.
0: The description of bird eyes as Yolki is brilliant. Oh,
2: thank
0: you. Did thank you. You were going for an egg theme? Indeed. Yeah, indeed. that's just brilliant. And then also, in the beginning, as you talk about the ghost of seeing yourself, I think reflected maybe in a high rise? Very much. Yeah, I've had that experience, and it, it feels as empty now. An experience in downtown Denver as it has ever.
2: Yes. It's a very, it's a jarring sort of place to be sometimes. Right? When it's almost a ghost town in certain times when you go. Yes. And so seeing like these sort of wavy apparitions <laughs> that might be a reflection of you or maybe not. Uh, and it's not quite the same bustling cityscape, uh, except for sometimes, right? in mm-hmm. different parts of it. And so it's it's odd to see.
0: Yeah, the know, pockets even. of it is so strange. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my profound sense, e- even in the Denver post-pandemic, is how much I love it. Yes. Do you feel that? That, that I, I don't want to be a fair-weather friend to Denver. Does that make sense?
2: I think Denver is home. It's been the only home I've ever known. It is the place that has made me. There are so many things I love about Denver, And particularly, it's people. So many people I love in Denver. There's a reason I've stayed in Denver for my entire life. Largely, most of my family isn't there now, right? And so that's really unusual, right? In fact, my mother was just saying to me the other day, like, of all of us, I'm surprised you're the one still there.
0: (laughs) Mm, That surprises her.
2: It does, very much. And so obviously, there's a lot that I love about Denver and have a lot of deep relationships there. And have done my work and lived my life there. And so I have a lot of investment in Denver. And I still believe in its possibility and the best of it. And I think that's gorgeous. And I think I love that you mentioned pockets, right? Because I think that Denver has always lived in these pockets. Mm -hmm. And there's all these little beautiful pieces of, I think, you know, I often think about like the United States, we talk about it as being the melting pot. And I always describe it as a mosaic. Right, where you have these very, very distinct pockets of things coming together. And I think at its best, right, you have the most beautiful little emergences of, of communities and different people and cultures coming together in an intentional way that creates a larger picture where no one has to be watered down or dismissed. Right, Everyone gets to show up as their most rich colors, their most vibrant selves. Right, And I think Denver's that way too, right? Denver used to have more diversity than it does now, and that is alarming to me. And I think as we're seeing it become more and more homogenized, that's the part that is is concerning to me and makes it feel a little less like home than it used to. Mm. And I think that when I talk with other people who have lived in Denver a long time, there's this sense that we're being gaslit, right? Like it's almost like not only do we not recognize the place we are, but there is this mythology now that that it never existed, Right. And this this we are now the strangers and this like, you know, that was never that was never even a thing. And it's not uncommon to drive down a Denver block and see the entire block has shifted in the space of a year. And so trying to figure out where you are, what's happening, and and try to find a place that remembers you, it's almost as if you've invented an entire life that doesn't exist. The cultural erasure is so aggressive because it's so rapid. And of course, so many people are displaced from it. The people that remember those things with you are fewer and
0: fewer mm. all the time. The brain trust has been lost. Yes. I'm going back to the pigeons in my mind because as you wrote about them in that poem, they were something of an anchor for you, a yes. reminder, a compass. Yes. Bald eagles. Yes. Kind of, it's a, kind of the opposite of a pigeon.
2: Absolutely. right? <laughs> and in so many ways, right? The relationship that they've had. I think, you know, again, growing up, As a kid, bald eagles were almost extinct, right? They were talked about as, like, deeply, deeply precious, right? And then they were intentionally brought back, right? And so they represent now for me this hope and this possibility of, like, re-indigenizing so we can learn from the behaviors and we can actually restore the population. And so, uh, in fact, I was at City Park a few weeks ago and just saw this bald eagle hanging out on this block of ice just chilling. We're all standing around looking at it, talking about it, taking pictures. It didn't move. It didn't notice us. It was just living its bald eagle life. Like, yeah, yeah I live here. What?
0: Yeah, I wonder <laughs> if bald eagles are aware that they're the national symbol. Right. You don't know, have have ego about it.
2: And how precious they were and how, how much more populated they are. Right now, now they're no longer even endangered, I think. So now it feels very hopeful when I think about the bald eagle and it was at the brink. And then we went, oh, no, and we brought it back.
0: Well, I think we have to hear the bald eagle poem.
2: So this is in the voice of a bald eagle. <laughs> so, um, and I think she has a sense of humor. In this, I, I think I hear her as a she... LOL. I was almost extinct out here. Then they want to put me on their money, on their flag, on their official seal like I represent their freedom, like they ain't tried to shoot me out the sky just to prove they can. Want to tuck my stolen feathers in their cap like they given God the bird. I am the bird. I am God's bird, that's why they hate me so. Smell the free air against my skin. Make them not nets, jealous of my soaring. Make them sling rocks, cause everybody wanna act like they're David before he was king, but don't nobody wanna talk about the blood on his hands except his own God, who said his hands were too soiled to build his temple, which is probably a story about the insatiability of violence and how quick it gets out of hand. Oh, America, you nearly killed me to make me yours. If you could have made me the ghost in your mouth, would your breath have smelled like sulfur? Did you think my feathers would make you fly? Look, I'm an old bird, bald-headed and everything. I remember the old stories and a life before you. Most of all, I know how temporary and forever we are. Don't come looking uninvited in my nest for answers and expect to leave your eyes intact. I think the, the eagle is pissed. Yes. Like a little pissed. Yes. But also sort of laughing at them. Like, okay. Because also, like, ultimately, she's winning. You know yeah, I mean? that's and she right. knows it. She's just like, okay, you almost killed me. And now, like, I'm your symbol. Whatever. Like, do you. I'm going to continue. And still, I'm thinking about this eagle being perched on the ice. Just living its eagle life. Like, you, I'm fine. You can't fine. touch me. Yeah.
0: yeah. But also the notion of don't intrude on my nest yes. makes me think a lot about... Your earlier comments about Denver, right now, displacement—yes—who Denver is for, whose nest Denver is now—and right. mm-hmm.
2: I think that you know, I mean, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have a sense of ownership of Denver, um, you know. My father's people came from Kansas City. My mother's people came from San Luis Valley. And they came from Africa and Europe before that, right? So really, like, it doesn't belong to me. I don't have any territorial relationship to it. Um, I'm not a person that has a native bumper sticker. <laughs> um, I do laugh at those often. Right? <laughs> so I don't feel like I own it or like no one else. I think that migration is natural. I think people are migratory. I think that is very normal and natural. So that's not really my concern at all. I also... I enjoy many of the people who live in Denver now who didn't used to, right? So, <laughs> well, now that's,
0: that may separate you from other longtime Denverites, because I, I do think that there is an understandable frustration, maybe at the extreme end, hostility, and otherizing of those who, you know, came in after you. In w- fact. Why don't you have that?
2: I don't think that everyone comes in like Columbus. I don't enjoy the ones who do, right? The ones who come and pretend that there was nothing here and now we can just make it be whatever. Uh, So for the people that come to conquer Denver, to come to reimagine Denver in some entirely new way um, and make it unaffordable for the people who have been living there already, I don't enjoy them very much. That's not everyone that comes to Denver. I think about, um, like, architecture is a great example. So Mm. my dear friend Bobby Lefebvre, he's Colorado State Poet Laureate, he and I were having a conversation about The North Side specifically, right? He writes a lot about the North Side, right? So I'm from Park Hill. He's from the North Side. And we've watched this together um, as it's been happening. A lot of the new places in the North Side, but I think the houses in Park Hill and the North Side were traditionally pretty similar, right? Very front porch communities. And now a lot of the houses in the North Side have the rooftop patios, right? So they've scraped the, the houses that were there before. And they now have these rooftop patios, yes, Which so,
0: are fundamentally not connecting or weaving.
2: Exactly. It's, it's disrupting the way that a neighborhood operates, right? So Bobby and I both grew up in a Denver where you know your neighbors. You borrow a cup of sugar, right? These are things you, you talk to your neighbors. You know who they are. They know who you are. You know which houses you can go to, which ones you cannot, like, et cetera. And people communicate with each other. And that's part of how we thrive and how we survive as a community. And so now having these new homes the new home isn't necessarily the issue, right? Having the rooftop patio where you no longer interact, where you literally disrupt the way a place functions by looking down on it. That's the kind of New Denver I don't mm. enjoy.
0: You're working on a memoir.
2: I am. How did you know it was time to pursue that? Oh, I think I couldn't not anymore. That's part of creating from the excess and the void. Then the need to create it became so excessive that I had to start writing it.
0: This is a second reference you've made to the notion of feeling like you might burst if you don't get it out.
2: Yes. And I think that's very, it's, it's urgent. You know, it's when something I, I say will, will come knocking on my teeth. And... <laughs> it sounds painful. <laughs> so I'm you have to say it. You've got to let it go. <laughs> you know, that's part of it. So it's, uh, it's very different writing prose. I've spent my life in poetry for the most part. And so now working in prose, is, it's a very, very different model.
0: Has it been cathartic to go through old memories?
2: Mm, I think I do that with my poetry already. Okay. So, I mean, I think most of my work is pretty autobiographical. So it's not, that part is not new.
0: What's a narrative that you revisited as part of writing this memoir?
2: Oh, so many. Primarily, this is focused on childhood. So initially I thought when I set out to write this memoir, I was writing my first 13-ish years. And then it's now in conversation with itself in many timelines. So... There are so many different pieces as you start writing and remembering more and remembering more. It's sort of like writing dreams. If you've ever journaled your dreams, it's hard to remember dreams initially. And then the more you get into the practice of remembering them and recalling them by writing them down, the easier it gets to remember more and more and more. And before you know it, you have like full pages of journaling your dreams once you get into that practice. And it's the same thing, I think, with writing memory.
0: Do you ever worry that the memories are invented? No. No. Okay. No. Sometimes I don't trust my memory, Susie.
2: Yeah, I do have conversations with... I One of my older sisters helps me to place timelines. Uh-huh. Aha. Oh, I'm, yes. You have witnesses. I do. I'm the youngest in my family. So I think sometimes I have to go like, okay, this was 1980 what? Tell me because what I remember is this. And so we can piece it together. And she says, actually, it was, it was this. She has a little, a little bit more time and a different viewpoint. I think ultimately with memoir, like, is any of it ever exact, right? Mm-hmm. There are pieces of it. I've had a few friends read it that were in in that are in the book, right? You know, and they're like and they remember things slightly differently. They're like, "Well, I was there when this thing happened." And I'm like, "Well, you didn't contribute to the scene, love, so you're not in it." No. <laughs> <laughs> there are, there are like little minute details that that don't necessarily matter. I think that what I'm sharing is overall, it is an absolutely true representation of my memory, certainly.
0: Will it be populated by places that no longer exist?
2: Definitely. Yeah. How can I write a story that took place in Denver in the 1980s and 90s without including places that no longer exist.
0: To that end, before we go, is Denver for artists today?
2: I hope so. I don't think it would be possible for me to be the artist that I am growing up in today's Denver. Mm. Largely because many of the spaces and communities I was allowed to create in no longer exist. I think about the ways that we created open mics and we created concerts and shows and turned things into venues because we went to local coffee shops and said, "Hey, can me and my friends do this thing?" And they were like, "Yeah, that's fine." <laughs> and then me and my friends did the thing. Hmm. There was a community sense in that way that a lot of those places just don't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, it feels so corporatized now, doesn't it?
2: Right. I mean, we still have the Mercury Cafe. We still have Whittier Cafe. We still have a few spaces that will lend themselves to the arts, and we do have SCFD. We do have arts and venues. Like there are organizations that definitely support the arts and I scfd think that,
0: is the scientific and cultural facilities district a taxing district to support the arts
2: yes and so but they they tack they fund specifically arts organizations right so not directly artists and so i think about how you become and see yourself in a space and really just when you're trying things out when you're not i think when you're a, if you're a fully fledged living your life as an artist professionally denver's a place you can live hmm you have to be an institution. Yes, but but to become an artist in Denver, I think I, I don't know what I would do now without, you know, we, we no longer have a Paris on the Platte or a Muddies or even a Perkins, Denny's Village in White Spot, right? All of these places where I sat down and, and with my little $1 to buy a pot of coffee for hours so I could sit quietly in a corner and write my poems uh, or so I could just, you know, gather with my friends for a long time and think about things and envision what was possible. And I think for young people, there are very few places like that that are safe for them to gather and and be themselves and express. And so I think that is, we do have, of course, some organizations, right? We have some, we have Youth on Record. We have Art from Ashes. We have some really important organizations that definitely foster youth voice, right? But there's not nearly enough of it. And we need, we need more places for the youth to develop their voice.
0: Thank you for being with
2: us. Thank you for having me.
0: Denver poet Susie Q. Smith from last month. We talked about housing affordability, a topic we'll continue to cover. In fact, I'm looking for people who can't afford to rent or buy in the Colorado neighborhood where they grew up because housing prices increased. If that's you, anywhere in the state, email Matters at CPR.org. Matters at CPR.org. I'd especially love to hear from folks on the Western Slope. I'm Ryan Warner, you're with CPR News and KRCC.